Jesus. Name above all names. I can think of no other name, much less any other word, that does what speaking the name of Jesus does. And Jesus, you who are most holy and yet put on flesh, you who are righteous God and yet who absolutely knows and understands what it's like for us to be in the skin. And Jesus, you who are divine and at the right hand of the Father and immediately with us here tonight. Jesus, your name brings peace and comfort and strength. Jesus, your name convicts and challenges. For you, Lord Jesus, are the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through you. And we gather in this place tonight, oh Jesus, because of you. To be in your presence in a way, Lord, we recognize is more profound than we're by ourselves. And we can come to you, we know this, anytime in prayer. We know you never leave us, nor forsake us. We know that you will be with us to the very end of the age. But you also said, all those precious words where two or three are gathered, in my name, I am there, in your midst. And we believe that, Lord. We welcome you. We're thankful, Lord, so thankful that you're here. And that you chose in your busy schedule to be here tonight. And I would simply pray as we open your word that the blessing of your presence would fall on all those gathered here. Would you, Holy Spirit of the living God, Spirit of Christ, teach us now those things which you have determined for us to know by your word and by divine revelation tonight in Jesus' name. Would you all say that with me? In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Sunday morning we talked about Holy have-tos. Yeah, bring me down a bit there, Jim, if you would. You ever listen to your voice on tape? You know, or on recording and you just can't stand it? Now try putting this thing on and having it come back at you. <laughs> Sunday morning, we talked about holy have-tos. One of the things we have to do is have some light. So, Jim, once you get the sound, thank you. Excellent. Holy have-tos. And the greatest example, the most holy have-to, happened on a hill far away. You know, Jesus did not want to go to the cross. 
In fact, he said, My father, if it's, impo- if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Which very clearly tells us that the will of Christ was not to go to the cross. That was the will of the Father that He accepted. It was a holy have-to, the most holy of all the have-tos in history. Jesus who didn't want to. Hebrews 12.2 tells us He endured the cross, despising the shame. That does not sound like something you want to do. I endured that movie. You know, I hung in there at that party. I didn't want to be there. Jesus did not want to be on the cross, but He went to the cross by the Father's will. And perhaps more than anything else we talked about on Sunday, if you're finding yourself facing something that you have to do because God is calling you to do it, and it is a have to, remember, Jesus had to go to the cross. He had no choice because He handed His choice to the Father. And accepted the will of the Father. Now, following Christ's example, we heard from the Apostle Paul in chapter 9 last week. And on Sunday morning as well. The compulsion. A man under compulsion. Why was he a man under compulsion? Because he followed a man under compulsion, Jesus Christ. Why was Paul able to do what he did? Because Jesus did it first. And so we don't elevate Paul as the Savior, as the Messiah. No, we have a Savior and a Messiah named Jesus. Paul is just one who followed. One who took Jesus at His word and became a man under compulsion because Jesus was Himself. And so Paul is able to, with all humility, I mean truly, with no pride, no arrogance, when he begins to defend his apostleship in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, he's not doing it out of pride. He is doing it out of example. In the same way that Christ was example for us, so Paul was an example following the example of Christ. And so you and so I am called. We are called to leave an example even as the one whose example we follow. That's that's how the process works. I mean, it's pretty simple. Jesus goes first and we follow after. And there will be those who follow after you because you're following after Christ Jesus. And they might not even see Jesus yet. They may only see you and follow. But ultimately, heading in that same direction, everybody starts to see Jesus and realize He is the example to emulate. He is the one that we pattern our lives after. So Jesus first. And now along comes Paul to the Corinthian church saying, look, follow my example even as I follow the example of Christ. Imitate me, he would say, as I imitate Jesus. Do as I do, as I do what he did. And that's what he's getting after in chapter 9, again, using himself as an example. Now I remind you, he's in the midst of answering the second Corinthian contention. The second issue that they raised in a letter to Paul, now he's responding. And this second one is what they believe is their right to dine in an idol's temple. Chapter 8, verse 10. They felt they had a right. Paul is now answering that right. I know that that's what he's talking about, as we will see tonight, because he makes a distinction between eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, which is no big deal, and actually dining in an idol's temple. So this is the thing they bring up. Why can't we eat where we want to eat, what we want to eat, with who we want to eat, and it doesn't matter who it affects or or, or any of that. And what they were doing is overstating or overestimating their personal liberty. 
It's fine. I'm free in Christ Jesus. Therefore, if I eat in an idol's temple, it doesn't affect me because I'm free in Christ. I have that right. I can do that. But as they overestimated their personal liberty, they were underestimating the lure of idolatry. We think we're so strong. We are not as strong as we think we are. So Paul is coming right back at them. And he comes up now with another example. We have the imitation, the example of Christ. Paul gives himself as an example. But now he's going to reach back a ways. He's going to give the example of another people who overestimated their their newfound liberty and freedom, the children of Israel. Now, you're going to need your Bibles open tonight. We're going to be back and forth, primarily between 1 Corinthians and the book of Numbers. So you might want to just kind of put a finger. You can put a finger in Numbers chapter 11. We're going to hit several chapters in the book of Numbers and probably pull from from a couple of other places in the Torah as well. But this will be a little exercise. I I, I pray, I hope that nobody sprains a finger tonight (laughs) as we work our way and let our fingers do the walking through the Word of God. Well, Paul points out, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, we began to touch on this just a little bit last week as we looked at the overview of chapters 8, 9, and 10. But here in 10, Paul draws a beautiful parallel between the Jewish people in the wilderness passing through the Red Sea underneath the cloud of his covering. He parallels this with baptism. What was to them a going through the waters of the sea is similar now to to us is, is baptism. And then he also draws another parallel of their spiritual food and drink to our spiritual food and drink. For them, it was manna and water from the rock. For us, it's matzah and juice representing the blood of Christ. They have a spiritual food and drink. We have a spiritual food and drink. They had a baptismal experience. We have a baptismal experience. And there's a very specific reason that Paul is illuminating these things. But but note this, before we see what that is, did you catch how he described those early Israelites? He calls them, verse 1, our fathers. Now maybe that's not shocking to you, it was shocking to me. It wouldn't be if, if Paul was at this point writing to the church in Jerusalem. But he's writing to the church in Corinth. And it refers to the ancient Israelites, the children of Israel, as our fathers, while he's writing to a primarily Gentile church of Greeks and Romans. Oh, there were some Jews there, but certainly not the majority. Paul is not being exclusive in his language. He's not just talking to the Jews. You know our fathers, not the rest of you, you know, Gentile Christians, but the Jewish Christians, you know what I'm talking about. It's not what he's saying. He is calling out the inclusiveness of Christ Jesus. 
And I love this because when he says our fathers, it reminds me we have a shared genealogy. I think I've told you before, I grew up in Southern California, which has been called a melting pot where nobody has a a history. We all are just kind of Californians, you know. Nobody really has some long legacy. It's not like Dutch Oak Harbor, you know. I'm Dutch. I'm proud of it. You know, and, and Glenn was telling me, boy, we've got more and more Dutch people coming to the bridge. And I'm like, well, that ought to help the potlucks, you know, at least. <laughs> there was nobody like that, you know, South Orange County. It was just a mixture of everyone everywhere. And I know I've got some European background in me. Primarily, I've got some Scottish and I can be proud of that, although I will never wear a kilt. <laughs> I've got some history there, but but nothing really that that I can say, these are my people. This is where I come from. And then I began to realize, I do have that. I have an inheritance in Israel. I have been, as we read in Romans 11, I have been grafted in. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they are my fathers. Through Jesus Christ and through faith, I'm grafted in. I'm part of this deal. They are my fathers by faith. I am walking in a faith that was begun with that people who are my people. I love the Jewish people. I have had an increasing love for the Jewish people over the years. And it's not because of behavior. I've known some Jews that were real jerks. I can't believe you said that, Rick. Well, I've known people who are real jerks. I mean, it doesn't really matter who you are. If you're a people, you're probably at some time going to, you know, be a jerk. Why do I feel like the hole's getting deeper here? (laughs) I love Israel as a people. Primarily because God does, but also as I have come to understand, as I have looked into the rich history and the lineage, what Paul says. He says, Romans 9.4, To the Israelites belong our adoption as sons. Our adoption belongs to them. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises. Whose are the fathers? Wait a minute. Paul here says, our fathers. Yeah. The fathers belong to Israel and the fathers belong to us if we by faith enter into Yeshua HaMashiach, our very Jewish Messiah. He says, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are from Israel. In other words, not all Israel is genetic. There is a faith aspect to this. And in the same way, the Lord would say to a Jewish person, you're not just saved because you're Jewish. Nobody's saved because they happen to be Jewish. They will be saved because as a Jew they believe in the Jew Jesus Christ. Because that's the only place that salvation is found. In Him and in no one else. Listen, what I'm saying is this. They're our fathers. So the Jewish people are neither replaced nor are they perfect. They are neither replaced, automatically cast out, and replaced by the church, nor are they automatically saved apart from faith in Yeshua. And God is not through with the Jew. Don't forget that. I I believe, personally, we owe a great debt to Israel. These are the people who kept the word. These are the people who faithfully copied it year after year. Down through the ages. 
These are the people through whom our Messiah came. And God is not through with the Jew. They're brothers, they're sisters of a shared inheritance now. Well, Rick, that sounds kind of arrogant. Why would you think you deserve it? I don't. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve the inheritance, but neither does Israel, as you will see tonight. Our inheritance is not an earned thing. It is a given thing by our shared father. And so they are our fathers. And Paul says they all drank from a spiritual rock. And, verse 4 tells us, the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. This is more than just a spiritual example. I absolutely believe what Paul is saying here. He says, literally, it was a spiritual rock which followed them. How does a rock follow you? Typically, a rock stays put. But this rock followed them through the wilderness. Paul is not just making an illusion here. I believe he is speaking of what we call a Christophany. That is the presence of Jesus in the Hebrew Scriptures. That he was, in fact, present in the wilderness. The rock was there. Jesus was there. And He is the one who provided and provides water. Refreshment. Water from the rock? Why would God choose such a bizarre thing in the wilderness? Water from the rock. Why not just have water bubble up from the ground or shoot out of the trunk of a tree? Because water from the rock speaks of Christ. John 4.14 Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, Jesus said. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John chapter 7 verse 37, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Our fathers, through our fathers comes the Christ. But our Christ followed our fathers through the wilderness as living water, providing even then for their needs. But listen, back to Paul's point in these first five verses, whether it's the Red Sea or baptism, whether it's manna or matzo, none of these, while being meaningful, none of these were magical. And I believe I shared that last week. That you don't say, because I walked through the Red Sea and walked under the cloud, I am automatically sinless. Nor do you say, because I went into the waters of baptism and came back out, am I automatically good to go, I will never sin again, it's just going to slide right off me, and therefore, as long as I've been baptized, as long as I've gone through the Red Sea, I can go anywhere, do anything, and temptation has no hold on me. Wrong. Wrong. Hey, baptism represents outwardly what God has done inwardly, washed, cleansed, and saved. Absolutely. No question. But that doesn't mean I am not temptable. It doesn't mean I can just do whatever I want, and it's good because, hey, I just came out of the waters of baptism. Or, hey, I took communion Sunday, so I'm clean for the week. Have you done that? We did that in in college all the time. We went to church on Sunday night because we couldn't get up Sunday morning, but the reason we went Sunday night is because they served communion and we had to get our credit. (laughs) Communion credits. We called it that. It's pathetic. But there are those who think as long as I can get in there and grab the cracker and the juice, okay, then that cleanses me, that somehow uh, mollifies my sin for the week. My friends, none of these things mystically insulated against rebellion. 
And I absolutely believe that's the point that Paul is making. That, yeah, they were under the cloud, the covering of God. Yes, He brought them miraculously through the Red Sea. He fed them manna. He gave them water when they thirsted. He took care of all these needs. And so therefore, they should have been sinless, right? Wrong. And now Paul is going to give five verses and five different examples of very specific instances in Israel. An example for us, lest we too be tempted like they were. Verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Example number one, Israel craved evil. Israel craved evil. That Greek word for craved is epithumetes. And epithumetes, it literally means they lusted. They lusted in the wilderness. James 1 verse 14 says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, epithumia, Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Temptation works our lust. It works our cravings. It works our desires. And by the way, lust is not just a sexual thing. Lust is any craving after flesh. So what was the evil thing that Israel craved? Numbers 11 verse 4. The evil thing they craved was meat. Talk about flesh. After having it up to here with manna, they were ready for a good T-bone. Verse 4, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. Also the sons of Israel wept again and said, this is Numbers 11.4, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Were they free in Egypt? (laughs) The cucumbers, oh, and the melons, and the leeks. (laughs) And the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. We're sick of it. Banana pancakes. Manicotti. Manischewitz. You can come up with your own manograms. You know what's interesting? The Bible describes manna, and it actually sounds kind of good. Verse 7, Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium, which is kind of a gold. And the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones, or beat it on the mortar, or boil it in the pot. And make cakes with it, which is why I said banana pancakes. There, And its taste was the taste of cakes baked with oil. Oh, bring it on. Cakes with oil? I'm in. Throw a little syrup on that. I'm good to go. Verse 9, when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. And this was apparently actually a very tasty uh, meal that could be used in various different ways to cook and to eat. And it was sustaining. And, and it was strengthening. Down in verse 13. They came to Moses. They complained to Moses. They whined to Moses. And Moses, in his turn, did what a lot of us do. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. 
What's he doing? He's immediately trying to fix the problem and it's impossible. The one right thing Moses does is he takes it to the Lord. But the question he's asking, okay, Lord, they want meat. Now I'm not seeing any buffalo or any gazelle or anything out here that we might, I need some help here, Lord. We need meat. And he says, verse 14, I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me. (laughs) Kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. I'm done. They're sick of manna. I'm sick of them. (laughs) Down in verse 19. I love this. Verse 19. The Lord says, (laughs) You shall eat. Not one day nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils. And that's not funny. It's not funny. comes out your nostrils. Are you with me? Okay. And it becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, yet you have said I will give them meat so they may eat for a whole month? (laughs) Come on, Lord. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And it did. Quail in masses just started coming right into the camp. And it said that they were flying in about three feet off the ground, just tons of quail. Here they come. And the Israelites were just taking baseball bats, just taking them out. Home runs. Right? John Corson points this out, that the Bible tells us that they gathered a homer. It's pretty good. Hey, lust is anything I crave after in the flesh, listen, that denies what God has offered. That's the problem with lust. It takes my eyes off of His blessing, His offering, His gracious giving, and it puts it on what I think I need now because I want, I need, I have to have. And I know better than God does. He's been giving me this manna. I want flesh. I want meat. And so Psalm 106, verse 14, tells us they craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert, so He gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. I like the King James translation of that. He sent leanness to their soul. They got what they wanted. Meat and plenty of it. But in their souls, they were lean. They were empty. Careful. Careful with lust and craving because you tend to get what you lust for. And you tend to discover it leaves you lean-souled. It leaves you empty. And Jesus said, Mark 8.36, What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
Psalm 37 verse 4 tells us instead, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. And so Paul, he talks about their craving in the wilderness and their craving was very clearly for the flesh. They lusted after meat. Example number two, back in 1 Corinthians, keeping a finger in Numbers. Example number two, Israel committed idolatry. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. This is another example, and Paul lifts this one directly out of Exodus 32. In fact, it's a direct quote from Exodus 32, verse 6, that the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. And he is referring to the granddaddy of Israelite idolatry, the golden calf. The golden calf. You all know the story. Exodus 32, verse 6, And they rose up early on the morrow, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings to this golden calf. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now listen, the application is perfect, because like Israel, some in the Corinthian fellowship wanted to sit down and eat and drink in the old pagan temples. They sat down to eat and drink, they rose up to play. And the implication in Exodus 32 was they rose up to play the harlot with the golden calf to worship the calf, to dance around the calf, to have these ceremonies with the calf. And Paul is saying here to the people at Corinth, look, you go and eat. You dine in those pagan temples. You may just sit down to eat. You're going to rise up to play. You are going to rise up to idolatry. You are going to return to those things. Do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Bad company corrupts good morals. That's not just a a saying, a motto from Mike Brady. Brady Bunch days. Now Greg, Marsha, bad company corrupts good morals. No, it's biblical and it's absolutely true. And Paul's saying, he's warning. Look at what happened to Israel. They sat down to eat and drink and they rose up in pure idolatry. Don't do the same. By the way, It's interesting Paul is talking the way he's talking. Remember, this is the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles. If there's anyone in all Israel who was a Jew among Jews, it was Paul, and yet God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So you would think, I would think, as I have done in the past, you need to rework your thinking, Paul, and speak Gentile language to Gentile people with Gentile examples. And yet every example he gives here is Israel. Every example he gives, he pulls directly out of the Hebrew Scriptures. And again, he is not writing to the church in Jerusalem. He is writing to the church at Corinth. Greeks and Romans and pagans, at least at one time. It's pagan country. And he's given all these examples. And to fully grasp and understand their meaning, they would have to, have to, study the Hebrew Scriptures. They would have to be familiar with Torah. Same with us. Same with us. All Scripture, Paul says, is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The study of and familiarity with the Hebrew Scriptures is absolutely vital 
to the Christian walk. Just because we now happen to be well on our way into the New Testament doesn't mean we need to forget about the 11 or 12 years we spent in the Hebrew Scriptures. Because that's the foundation. And without that foundation, without that understanding, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have caught that all five of the verses right here, one after another, are all direct stories out of the Torah. I've read this a hundred times. And if you just read it as a church kid who grew up going to church as I was and who heard the writings of Paul all the time but never ventured into the Hebrew Scriptures except for the occasional flannel graph. Some of you remember those. Man, if that's where you're coming from, you miss this stuff. It's remarkable. It deepens our comprehension of the New Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ Himself. So, that's why we're taking a little extra time to go back to Numbers, and we're going to do it again. Because Israel craved evil, that's example number one, wanting that quail, that meat in the wilderness. Secondly, Israel committed idolatry with the golden calf, Exodus chapter 32. And thirdly, Israel chased after sexual immorality, verse 8. Nor let us act immorally, that is pornea, nor let us act with sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Oh, we got to read about that. Go back to Numbers 25. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of of Moab. Moab, where's Moab? That's southern Jordan. Okay, so the very south end of Jordan, across the river, that's Moab, and they began to draw the Israelites away. For, verse 2, they invited the people to the sacrifices of their God. There's your idolatry. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you, slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Man, that's brutal. It's bloody. And you know, that's what you do with a a rabid dog. You put it out of its misery. Slay them. These were people who had given themselves wholesale over to idolatry and rejecting God as God. God never slays people He can save. But once beyond salvation, as in this case, He will save those who are salvageable. That would be the children. That would be the women. That would be the men who had not yet given themselves over to the Moabite idolatry. But that's not where it ends. my favorite part of the story. Verse 6. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the men of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. (laughs) So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked, and those who died by the plague were 24,000. Sin kebab. (laughs) 
He skewered the man and the woman in the act of adultery. And by the way, for this, God blessed Phineas and said his name would be remembered. Talk about a man under compulsion, a man who believed in and honored the holiness of God. Did you catch the flaw? If you're reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, you'll note that Paul is off by a thousand. Paul said 23,000 fell in one day. Well, here in Numbers 25, verse 9, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And some have actually pointed to this to question Paul's inspiration. See, there are those who will try to find anything they can to undermine Scripture if they can. The problem is it never works. You can't undermine the truth. The truth is rock solid. So what's the deal here? It's not a contradiction at all. It is actually a literal confirmation. Note the difference. What does Paul say? Paul says 23,000 fell in one day. Numbers 25 verse 9 says 24,000 fell in totality. I mean, in essence, 24,000 were killed. But Paul says 23,000 all in one day. That's not a contradiction. Paul is well within the 24,000. And he's speaking that 23,000 died at that point. One day went down in this plague. And then another 1,000 would die in time over that for a total of 24,000. Listen, why even make the distinction? I mean, wouldn't it have been better for Paul just to say 24,000 and then we wouldn't have to worry about it? And those of us who are uncertain about the Scriptures wouldn't have to go, Oh, 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 no. Contradiction. Why not just leave it alone, Paul? Two reasons. Number one, truth is truth. And Paul is just speaking the truth. That yes, indeed, because of the sin of the people, with Baal of Peor, with the Moabites, with the Midianites, because of this sexual immorality that was running rampant through the camp, Paul says in one day 23,000 fell. And a total of 24,000 lost their lives. But listen, there's an application here. And it is very simply that some sexual sins kill faster than others. Some will kill in one day. Some kill over time. Some will kill the flesh. Others will kill the heart. There is a difference in sexual sins in how they kill, but they will all ultimately kill. Oh, Rick, you're back on sexual immorality again. It's right here, man! We can't help it. Don't act in that way with sexual immorality. It's the difference of adultery and pornography. Well, I wouldn't go and commit adultery. I wouldn't do that to my wife, to my children, to my family. But but pornography, really, who's that hurting? It's just me, right? They are both sexual immorality. Now, I didn't talk about pornography before. I didn't address the issue of pornography a few weeks back when we were talking about sexual immorality. And, and the reason was, honestly, I can't talk about everything in one sitting. It's also that I wanted to be absolutely clear that sexual immorality, what exactly it meant in terms of the action. But you all know, Jesus said, Matthew 5.27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, I'm good with that. The Pharisees might say, would that he just left it alone. But I say to you, 
that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pornography is adultery. It's the same thing. One is acted on, the other is lusted after, but Jesus says you've committed adultery in your heart. And then He says if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell, into hell. And, and if you actually did that, most men among us would be walking around blind or at least one-eyed. You would hope that the plucking of one eye would be enough for us to get it. You know, you probably should stop. you Listen, there are other things that you can do besides plucking out an eye if you're having an issue with pornography. And this, by the way, goes to men and women because the statistics are a rising number of women who are just as addicted to pornography as men are. The sad thing is that the addictions of pornography within the church and among Christians is no different than among non-Christians. Same as adultery, same as, as divorce, and same as so many different things that we've, that we've seen and dealt with. But the issue of pornography is so... It's so ugly. And it's so under the surface and it is so deceiving. I received a letter just this last week from a concerned brother and sister. Literally pointing out, listen, you talked about sexual immorality, but you did not talk about pornography. Well, okay. I have talked about pornography, but let's talk about it again. Let me just tell you something briefly. And this was shared in the letter and the statistics are backed up. I checked them. 90% of children ages 8 to 16 have viewed pornography with an average first age viewing at 11 years old. My daughter Naomi just turned 11. And that's the average viewing age of a child to see pornography for the first time. 10 to 14 billion dollars are spent annually on pornography in the United States which is more than the combined revenue of pro basketball, baseball, and football altogether. This country spends more on pornography than we do on our three top sports. Pornography is a threat. It is a danger. It is no different than any other sexual immorality. It is sex outside of marriage. Married or not. And so being clear on that, what am I supposed to do then, Pastor Rick? Pull my right eye out? Well, you could put a parental lock on your computer. Guys, if you're struggling, you could ask your wives for help. Bring them into it. Shine the light on it. Well, if I do that, then I'm going to be seen as weak. You are weak. And so am I. You can ask a brother, brothers, and you can ask a sister, sisters. Notice how I said that. To keep you accountable. There's all kinds of software out there now. I mean, tons of excellent software out there where you can sign up, you and and a brother in the Lord, and if you try to go to a pornographic website, it flags the brother's computer and he can call you up and go, so what are you doing right now? (laughs) The lure of this thing, man, with, with our iPhones and our computers and our access... Is anyone surprised that 10 to 14 billion dollars is being spent on an annual basis for this garbage? And the devil's having a heyday because he's convincing Christians all over the place it's not a big deal. It's just visual. 
I'm not actually doing anything, you know, sexually immoral. You are. So there's the truth about that. And Paul says, look, this was going on long before you. All these things. Look at the example of Israel. They craved evil. They committed idolatry. They're now chasing sexual immorality. By the way, notice the progression there. It seems to be one following the other. And then the next one, the next one is verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Try the Lord. That doesn't mean, hey, try the Lord. (laughs) The word is ekperazo. It's two Greek words put together. Ek means out. And perazo means to test. So the phrase is to test out. But to test out by incrimination. To test out by accusation. What Paul is saying here in this next example, again, this is example number four, Israel is incriminating the Lord, or if you'd like to jot this down, Israel complained against the Lord. They tried the Lord by complaining against the Lord. They craved evil, committed idolatry, chased after immorality, and complained against the Lord. And here is the story that Paul is drawing off there for verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Do you know the story? Numbers 21. Numbers 21, verse 4. We're still in the wilderness. And Israel is still sinning. And as Paul points out, it is one type of sin after another. Verse 4, Numbers 21. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient because of the journey. Moses, when are we going to get there? Moses, are we there yet? How much longer, Moses? Can we stop? i got to go to the bathroom. Santa McDonald's, how long? You know, it's my trip's down to Southern California right there. <laughs> Verse 5, But the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Miserable food? Manna. Still sick and tired of the manna. I read that and I was thinking today, what does our complaining sound like to God? Who does so much. And we complain about the most ridiculous things. He provided for them. Think about this. It wasn't just water from the rock. Sweet, fresh water in the middle of the wilderness. That's miraculous. It wasn't just that they woke up in the morning and the toast was ready. You know, the manna had fallen in the night. He gave them miraculous, astounding freedom from their bondage. Does anyone dispute that? After the ten plagues and bringing them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, all that they had seen and experienced by the hand of the Lord, remarkable. He gave them a cloud to cover them by the day from the heat of the sun. He gave them a fire at night for warmth and for protection and for light. He gave, as we sing in the old hymn, His own dear presence to cheer and to guide. And He even promised a land for them to head to. Gave them a purpose in the wilderness. We're going for something, gang. And they complained. 
complaining always holds God's goodness in contempt. Now think about that. Think about the last time you complained of something that really wasn't going the way you wanted it to go. I hate this job. Or, I hate my hair. Or, I hate that this job gave me my hair. (laughs) Think about the silly things we complain about in light of God's goodness. And what we are doing is we are holding His blessings in contempt. I don't care that you provided me all these other things, God. I'm not happy about this. What are you going to do about it? Now, I don't think any one of us here would say that to the Lord. But we are saying that to the Lord. We are in essence saying, Your goodness, Your blessings for all of my life is just not good enough, Lord, because I'm not happy about this issue. And we hold God in contempt. The truth is, the more I complain, the less I can see the blessings of the Lord. As complaints go up, my vision gets dim. And I see less and less of all the good things that He's really doing. Well, verse 6. So the Lord, Numbers 21.6, sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. It's one of the weirdest things he ever asked them to do. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And all that because they tried the Lord. They tested God. They complained against the Lord. We'll talk more about the bronze serpent on Sunday. A lot of you know the application of it. But right now, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul continues. 